One apparent paradox that we discover in our practice here, to remain at ease in the present moment, we must be intimately aware of the past and the future. Living in the present moment isn't living in some isolated vacuum suspended in time, but rather it is a recognition that this moment's place is defined by the past and the future. Life is a process of unfolding conditions. Life is not a paint-by-numbers, pre-drawn canvas that we fill in moment by moment. Our individual and our collective experience is rather a dynamic hologram that is that appears due to the conjunction of innumerable conditions outside of our control. Practice reveals the vastness of the conditions conditioning this moment. The building blocks of this process are, as we have been discovering moment by moment, sensations in the body and flickering experiences of the mind. And out of these few building blocks, we have created everything we know, everything we believe. From the macro to the macro, there's a vast, intricately woven tapestry of an infinite number of infinitely colored threads of experience that are continuously creating time and our place in it. It is said that after the Buddha realized the Four Noble Truths, that he continued to sit under the Bodhi tree for an additional seven weeks, enjoying the bliss of his realization in freedom. And at one point, when he was reflectively reviewing the intricacy and the vastness of the web of conditions that created the appearance of himself and the world, it is said that at, at that time when he, was, he could just see how it was all happening, that the colors of the rainbow radiated from his body. So there's one chapter in the Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology, in which the nature of conditionality is revealed or talked about. And this is encoded in the teachings of the Wheel of Dependent Arising, or Paticca Samuppada, and in a further teaching called Conditional Relations, 
or the Patana. And it is said that of all the vast teachings of the Buddha that exist on the face of the earth today, that it's the Patana that will disappear first. Because this understanding of the conditional relations that make up this thing we call reality is so vast, so subtle, that it is difficult to comprehend. We should understand that we live in an extraordinary time when the Buddhist teachings are still available to us. There will come a time when they no longer exist on the face of the earth. And humans such as ourselves won't have the opportunity to hear them or practice them because they'll be lost. In Burma, whenever there's a festival or a celebration or monks gather for most any reason, they recite the Patana maybe as a way of preventing the, or hopefully retarding the eventual loss of the Buddha's teachings on the face of the earth. So this being the beginning of this retreat, or near the beginning of the retreat, I thought that I would um, do my part to uh, preserve the teachings. And tonight I want to begin a series of talks on the nature of conditions, conditionality, the conditioning process, and the unconditioned. It's quite obvious that we are affected by what happens around us. When the temperature is cold, the body shivers. When the body is uncomfortable, we become unhappy. When we become unhappy, we say and do things to express it. When others hear that or see that, they're affected in their own way. In just this way, we are all connected to one another. It isn't just the Vietnam vets who went to war in Vietnam. We all went, whether we were alive then or not. And it isn't just the Buddha or the Bodhisattva that was affected by his realization 2,500 years ago. We've all been touched and affected by that. The web of our interconnected beingness is vast. With this practice, as we look closely at our moment-to-moment experience, we become nakedly aware of the most subtle and intimate manifestations of the body and the mind and this interconnectedness. 
and it gradually dawns on us that who we are in this moment, what we experience in this moment, is the result of an infinitely complex unfolding of impersonal, impermanent conditions, whose roots extend in the past beyond our reckoning, and whose roots also extend into the future beyond our vision. The pre-nascent conditions of genetics, our culture, our education, etc., even our karmic actions, seems obvious. There's no doubt that we are conditioned by our parents and culture. Without any one thing or one person or one experience being the cause, we can see that there is a resulting effect of all of these innumerable prior conditions. Just take, for example, this retreat. An infinite amount in a variety of conditions had to arise for this retreat to take place. Teachings, teachers, airline schedules, international banking, advertising and publishing industry. It doesn't take too many steps before we realize everyone on the face of the earth has been involved in our being here in some way. Our own personal decision made in the past a year ago, more than a year ago, the intention to come here sometimes two or three years ago, finally manifesting now. We have already a tremendous investment in being yogis here. Now, as long as our investment is rewarding, we're happy. But when our investment is threatened, we become unhappy. How easy it is to feel miserable, unhappy, if we feel the symptoms of disease creeping into our body. Or we uh, have some dislike of our yogi job assignment. Or we're bothered by the noises or the smells or the behavior of our roommates or hallmates. So easily our sense of ourself threatened. All of our investment, time, decision, uh, all of the conditions that we had to get together and everything threatened by, you know, a smell that crosses our nose, you know, from somebody's perfume or, right? Then our investment in expectations results in disappointment, frustration, and unhappiness. 
our present experience has been and continues to be conditioned by the past. The past exerts a powerful effect, conditioning effect on our present experience. Thich Nhat Hanh commented on this. When the Buddha said, do not pursue the past, he was telling us not to be overwhelmed by the past. He did not mean that we should stop looking at the past. When we review the past and observe it deeply, if we are standing firmly in the present, we are not overwhelmed by it. The materials of the past which make up the present become clear when they express themselves in the present. We can learn from them. If we observe these materials deeply, we can arrive at a new understanding of them. If we know that the past also lies in the present, we understand that we are able to change the past by transforming the present. The ghosts of the past, which follow us into the present, also belong to the present moment to observe them deeply, to recognize their nature and transform them is to transform the past and ourself. So the past, exerting a powerful conditioning effect on this moment. What may be less obvious is that the future, too, is exerting a powerful conditioning effect on this moment. I awoke to this uh, some months ago. Kamala and I were practicing at our home on Maui. We'd taken a month to, to do some practice. And in just being on this piece of land and sitting and walking and just really opening for the first time to where we were living. I remembered or recollected that Joseph would be coming to stay at our house in a few months from that time. This was last year when we came to the three-month course and Joseph stayed at our house. And when I thought of Joseph practicing there, I became happy. I got really very excited and joyful thinking that he would be practicing there. And it hadn't even happened. And yet, I was, my present experience at that time was deeply conditioned by what I perceived to be the future. Since that time, I have been noticing more and more how much, how often, and how deeply my present experience is conditioned by something yet to happen. This post-nascent conditioning is felt and known in moments of fear, anxiety, the feeling of rushing, 
waiting, apprehension, expectation, hoping, excitement. All of these experiences have as their powerful conditioning what we imagine the future to be or what the future actually is to be. One yogi yesterday acknowledged how pulled along he felt as soon as the lunch bell rang. As soon as the bell rang, it was as if this powerful magnet outside the kitchen door just kind of started yanking him in that direction. And when he was in the line behind a few people, he felt like he was tilting (laughs) towards them. And when he was busy spooning out the rice, he was anxiously looking at the salad. And when he was calmly eating that rice, he was thinking about the chocolate chip cookie. So much of our life, really, we try to live in the future, before it happens. Another yogi acknowledged yesterday how in past retreats he had noticed he spends an inordinate amount of time planning what he's going to do at the end of the retreat. I mean, it's just, maybe already you've started to plan what you're going And he said, you know, even if in the unlikely event he actually did what he planned, it is nothing like what, it doesn't offer what he thought it would offer. It is so empty of substance. And yet, in this forward-looking, planning mode, we invest a tremendous amount of substance and meaning and value and benefit. In what? A thought. Hopes, wishes. Another yogi with a little insight came in and said, the future is problematic, even if it's good. With the fact being that we are, our experience is conditioned by both the past and the future. The question for us in practice is, can we see the effect and let go? It's not as if we're going to somehow totally escape the idea of the past or the ideas of the past or the ideas of the future. That's not possible. We we just don't live in that kind of vacuum. But what we can do and can see in practice is how this conditioning is leading to suffering, unhappiness. And in seeing that, our practice then is to let go. We 
We can't stop the conditioning from occurring. We can only stop grasping it. And in that way, minimize the suffering that is inherent in the conditioned existence that we all live. Diligent attention, as Joseph spoke about last night, is required to see how this moment's unfolding is conditioned. And in that, not grasp the sense of self that is constellated, that appears due to these impersonal conditions. That's our task, really. Let the un- let the conditions unfold. Feel what it is we feel. Experience what it is we experience. But that sense of self that is created out of these conditions, not to grab onto that. In spite of all the conditions that are urging you to believe you are a yogi on a three-month retreat, When you close your eyes and you pay attention to your breath, what happens to the idea, three months, yogi, retreat? It's not there. And yet that image, that sense of ourself, really gets quite firmly conditioned by all of these conditions that are kind of coming together. The amazing and the unfortunate fact is even when the sense of ourself that is being constellated by conditions, even when it is painful, for whatever reason, trauma, being victimized, being careless, whatever reason, even then, we grab hold of that sense of ourself. There seems to be some insatiable need for us to feel a sense of self and to hold it in some way, thinking that it's going to, believing, hoping that it's going to provide us some security, some stability, some way of moving from this moment to the next. And even if it's painful, it's better to know, it's as if we say, it's better to live with this pain than to live with the unknown. As it happens, of course, practice does uncover these skeletons in our personality closet. What we've avoided and denied and pushed out of our mind has a way of coming into view. That's our practice, really. To uncover, to expose the avoidance in our life. 
and to find a way of establishing a relationship to it where we're not caught, where we're not hooked, where we're not tormented even by it. This is a gradual process. There is no way we can open the mind, the closets, the rooms, the infinite number of unseen rooms in the mind, and take them on. It is a very gradual process. And for the most part, this practice is a very gentle and gradual opening. Most of us opening to the extent that we can handle what we open to. And that doesn't mean that it's easy, but it is possible. One yogi recently acknowledged that prior to coming to the retreat, she spent some time cleaning out 25 years of accumulated stuff from her closets at home. And it, she said it was a, a terribly depressing uh, experience, in part because whatever she saw, the clothes, the, the shoes, the, whatever it was that she brought out of 25 years ago, reminded her of a sense of herself that no longer fit. Not that the clothes didn't fit, the self didn't fit. And there was this very conscious, intentional letting it go. At the end of which she said that she felt, even though it was depressing and difficult, that she felt much freer and much lighter. We do that here without going through the closets of our home. We go through the closets of our mind, uncover old senses of ourself, some that fit and some that don't, some that feel comfortable, some that feel terrible. And yet we're asked in each moment, is this you? Is this me? Does this fit? And can I let go? Can I let this, can I let it go? Can I see that the moment of that self has passed? It's gone. Without creating a new self in this moment. You know, when we have some clarity, some good mindfulness, and we're able to let things go, and we we get a little bit of momentum in our practice, and there's a little bit of smoothness and we have a good sitting now and then and a little bit of clarity and stillness, how quickly the self-image of I'm a good yogi, here it comes. And we grab onto that sense of ourself. I'm a good yogi. I just sat through an hour of pain or whatever. I had a moment, I had a a clear sitting. You know, I, I, I woke up this morning, whatever. And immediately we grasp onto that sense of ourself. Practice that we do here is not about 
deconditioning some negative, unwanted self in exchange for some better self, some more likable one. Ultimately, what we see is that we cannot maintain any sense of ourself because conditions are so unstable. If you've noticed that you consider yourself at times good yogi, bad yogi, next sitting good yogi, next sitting bad yogi, then you know you're a yo-yogi. But in the, ha- in the process of this yo-yoing around, we do actually decondition and let go of habit. The habit, the tendency towards greed, hatred, delusion, confusion. We do. We, let it, we learn how to let it go. And in the process, let go of those self-images that are so grounded and so rooted and so dependent on that grasping, that aversion, that confusion. How we understand the past, how we understand the future, they play a significant role in how we experience and practice in the present. So we might ask ourselves, what past conditions are most impacting our present experience? Have we seen the past? Do we know what past conditions are exerting their grip on us? We might ask the same of the future. As you look over your known past, what condition is most determining or conditioning or impactful in your present experience? your family of origin stuff, your education, your gender, your childhood experiences, some previous karma, hearing the Dharma, practicing the Dharma, All of these are good candidates. In the discourse on fools and wise in the wise, the Buddha spoke of the extreme rarity of taking birth as a human being and the wisdom of using that human birth to advantage. You've heard the story, but it's in this sutta, the Bala Pandita Sutta, 
the Fools and Wise Sutta, where the Buddha says the chance or the likelihood of being born a human is more rare than the blind turtle at the bottom of the ocean who surfaces to breathe at the end of every century, soon, in a couple of years, the chance that that blind turtle would put his head through a wooden yoke floating on the surface of the ocean is greater than our chance of being born a human. Somehow we have won the lottery, and we're here. For that reason alone, we should consider carefully what it is we're going to do with this human life. And why is the human life considered so valuable, so rare, so auspicious? It's because here we do have the opportunity to hear the teachings of the Buddha, to hear the Dharma, and to practice the motivation or the aspiration and the result being freedom from bondage, freedom from suffering for ourselves and others. It seems so obvious. It's so available to us. We overlook, we often overlook the fact of how rare it is, actually, to hear liberation teachings and to have the opportunity to practice. Even now, on the face of the earth, most beings do not have this opportunity. Most do not. For whatever reason, the, 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 just, it's just unavailable. And in this human existence, we have the, not only the opportunity, we have the means for practicing the Dharma. We have the leisure, we have the time, we have the resources. There are teachers, there are places. We can get here. It happens. Conditions support it. Everyone else in the world supports our being here. If we really look at what else in the past is conditioning this moment, everything else pales in significance to the fact that we're born human and then therefore have this opportunity. It's easy to overlook it. It's so easy to remain preoccupied with the dramas of our life, the, the just getting by, the surviving, the, the making ends meet that is also necessary to accommodate. And it's so easy to just dismiss as uh, insignificant or just take it for granted when in fact it is not a universal opportunity. 
by repeatedly reflecting on this opportunity that we have, both because of our birth as a human and the interest, the ability to hear the Dharma, the interest to practice the Dharma, the opportunity to be here, by reflecting on that, it can bring a powerful support to those times in practice that are difficult, when you feel lost, when you feel like it's not working, nothing's happening, and to really register once again how extraordinary it is and to not take it for granted. This understanding of the Buddha, it shifts. It, it really it affects a powerful transformative shift in our mind away from the concerns of this life alone and it really plants, it drops this seed of understanding in our mind, in our heart that will remain with us throughout our wandering in samsara however long we wander we have heard the teachings, the, the liberation teachings of the Buddha. What else have we done in this life? What else have we come in contact with that is going to last beyond this lifetime? What have we done? What have we accumulated? What have we learned? Nothing. Except this fact, this, this truth, that liberation is possible just to remember that on a daily basis, frequently even. Powerful support for being here, even if nothing else is going right. Sometimes in the busyness even of leading a retreat like this, or taking a retreat like this, we get caught up in the schedule, the interpersonal dramas, whatever. And this morning when I woke up, I, I walked up from the other side of the lake, just experiencing a simple walk you know, the Christmas crispness of the air, the brilliance of the sun, the colors of the leaves. Where else are you going to get that? It isn't in it doesn't exist in other realms. It's only here. That's pretty magical. And it's so easy to take it for granted. Tremendous support, just in the silence, the solitude, the seclusion of this place. Just step outside any time. Sometimes the mundane of our life here is so magical. There's another sutta 
called the Divine Messengers Sutta Discourse that the Buddha gave, where there's an alternative listing of the Divine Messengers. And the first Divine Messenger in this listing is a newborn baby. A newborn baby is a Divine Messenger to us. Just to see life, to see our dependence on everyone and everything for that life, and then to choose to have that choice, what to do with it. It's such a brief period of time, a a single life. It isn't much. And yet, we can do something. We do have to do something with it. What? One of the really powerful effects or effects of the of, of the Dharma is that it brings this question, what am I doing with my life into really sharp focus? And sometimes it's difficult to live with that question. And sometimes it's difficult to live with the answers. But nevertheless, Dharma practice asks us to look, to ask ourselves that question. What are we doing here? As powerful as the past is in conditioning our present experience, the future too exerts its influence. Consider something as simple and as immediate as knowing whether the sitting is going to be 45 minutes or an hour. You know, after 20 minutes, the discomfort arises in the body. Doesn't it make a difference whether the sitting is going to be 45 or 60 minutes? It makes a huge difference. And that's something that's so simple so almost insignificant, really, in the whole scheme of things. And yet, our whole mind can be obsessed with it for the remainder of the sitting, right? Or the arrangements that we each had to make in order to be here for six weeks or three months. How extensively we have to plan Make arrangements, the mail and the bills and the rent and all that stuff. Our view of the future, whether of work or practice, finances, opportunities, relationships, whatever, powerfully impacts how we live our life today, this moment. In the course of our practice, we discover just how pervasive this conditioning is. And we also see how we are caught, or where we're caught, 
in our view of the future. Now, it may be true that our understanding of the future is only a thought. And sometimes, indeed, we can notice, note it, be with it as merely a thought, and in that way postpone dealing with it. But on the other hand, there is a reality to the future. It may be a relative reality, but it's a powerful one. And ultimately we do incorporate some understanding of the future into our present. I remember reading, and I, can, I don't know where it was, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but something like this, that wisdom is the anticipation of consequences. If you anticipate the consequences, you will make wise choices. A steady eye on the evolving or the unfolding of time can offer us a skillful way of minimizing our present suffering. In fact, we might consider what what future condition is most exerting its grip on the present moment? What in our future is most conditioning this experience? The Buddha again offered very clear guidance in answering this question when he taught the protective reflection on death and when he acknowledged the efficacy of mindfulness as a way of liberation. Taken together, the skillful reflection of death and the mindfulness practice that Joseph was speaking about last night, taken together they shift our intention, our attention, and our energy away from some petty preoccupations with getting more, having more, doing more, learning more, to something much greater. When we bring our own death into focus, when we bring it into view, what we do in the present moment looks different, feels different. A lot of it loses its significance, its importance its value. What it helps us see is how and where we're caught in some slice of time that doesn't acknowledge the conditioning of the future. The Buddha was fearless in proclaiming the benefit of reflecting on our own death. Because ultimately, 
We don't know. The fact of death is unknown. Anything else about it, we don't know. Today, 300,000 human beings died on average on any given day. Were they ready? Did they expect it? Did they know it was going to happen? How did they die? There were fathers and mothers and children. Some died alone, some died in groups. Some were very happy, some were in a lot of pain. And yet, it just happens. When we reflect on the fact of death, as the Buddha instructed, as the Buddha suggested, death is certain. The time of death, it's uncertain. We can take nothing of our life here with us. And I and you will die. When we reflect on that, when we really bring that close to this moment, it's a powerful support for our practice. How can we be lost in fantasies? What happens to our insatiable desires for the future? What happens to our laziness? What happens to our whining, complaining uh, nature? These things just cannot, they just evaporate in the face of the reality that we will die. In many, many spiritual traditions, reflecting on one's own death, bringing death really close to the moment is a powerful and uh, very skillful practice. It's not not meant to be a morbid reflection. It's not meant to get you depressed and unhappy and afraid. It's not that at all, but rather it is to arouse this urgency, a sense of urgency and immediacy, and to really enliven a practice. In some traditions they talk about precious human birth. We could equally talk about precious human death. Both powerful support for our practice. I'd like to close with a teaching from 
Don Juan in Carlos Castaneda's books. Spiritual warrior is only human, a humble human. When one's time on earth is up and one feels the tap of death on their shoulder, one's spirit, which is always ready, flies to the place of his or her predilection, and there the warrior dances to his or her death. Every warrior has a place to die, a place that is soaked with unforgettable memories where powerful events left their mark, where one has witnessed marvels, where the secrets have been revealed, and where one has stored one's personal power. We cannot change the designs of our death, but one's impeccable spirit, which has stored power after stupendous hardship, can certainly hold death for a moment, long enough to let one rejoice for the last time in recalling one's power. We may say that is a gesture which death has with those who have an impeccable spirit. And thus, you will dance to your death. You will tell of your struggle, of the battles you have won and those you have lost. You will tell of your joys and bewilderments upon encountering personal power, about the secrets and the marvels you have stored. And your death will sit there and watch you. The dying sun will glow on you without burning. The wind will be soft and mellow, and your spot will tremble. As you reach the end of your dance, you will look at the sun, for you will never see it again in waking or in dreaming, and then your death will point to the vastness. Let's sit for a minute. spiritual warrior is only human, a humble human. Your death will have to sit and watch as you recount your struggles here on this retreat. The battles you win, battles you lose, the power you store. And as you reach the end of your dance, and you look at the sun, where you'll never see it again, in waking or in dreaming, and then your death will point to the vastness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.